G'day mates, welcome to Cocktails and Conspiracies. We're going to be covering freaky disappearances. Oh, oh crazy disappearances on Freaky Fridays. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Oh, I wish I could talk like that. It's, it's, so like, it's like trying to do a British accent and a country accent at the same yes. time. Yes. God, that was good. Thanks. That was cold. I didn't even practice. Because usually I have a couple of warm-up words. Let's hear the warm-up words. Boy, me crikey. I mean, that's like more crocodile dundee than anything else. I like it though. Um, but yeah, a lot of shit happens in Australia. Oh, it's a, it's it's like a another planet. But they're the nicest people. They're just a good time people. Yeah, they're a little rough. I mean, look look what the hell the country was started. It was exiles, right? It's like a lot of like. Um, besides the Aborigines, obviously, but like it was settled by prisoners. That's really, where, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, that's where like European countries would like send their like overflow of, of prisoners. They're like, okay, you can sit in jail or you can go like establish a colony and or whatever in Australia. For some reason, I thought it was like a super safe and friendly place. I there are some horrible murders in Australia. I know, really bad guys. Australia. It's wild. Yeah. It's rough. So, um, so we're just all a little hungover spiritually, physically. A little spent. A little spent. So yeah. I'm just drinking a Topo Chico, Topo Chico and Tito's just as clean as I can get it. Yeah. Tessie got in trouble last night for getting <gasps> so drunk. Oh, so no. I'm having a Bloody Mary because I'm a little hungover. Ooh. But you know what? That's the best. It really is. The I feel salt. so much better. I know. Yeah. A little hair of the dog, and then, like, it's a substantial, like, you feel like you're, like... It's a meal. It's like gazpacho. Yeah. If we want to be fans about it. All right. So, kick us off, Tessie. Okay. I'm going to start we going? us off. Um, my story is about the Somerton Man. Mm-hmm. This is a pretty famous case. It is. It's so mysterious. It's one of the oldest unsolved cases so, on the morning of December 1st, 1948, a man's body is found on Somerton Beach, which is in Australia. This dead man is laying flat on the ground with his head leaned up against a wall. Um, he's super well-dressed. His feet are crossed. There were no signs of distress. Everyone basically thought he was just drunk or drunk napping or just chilling out. So everyone would, like, pass him by. Yeah, so he mm-hmm. had people passing him by. No one really thought anything of it. Again, there was no distress on his body. He right. didn't look like he was murdered. Hurt. Right. right. So the crazy thing is this guy was totally off the grid. Investigators could not find a fingerprint match. There was no ID oh, found yeah. on him. And all of the tags on his clothes were cut off. <gasps> yeah. Hmm. So it was just really sketchy. He was on the news for weeks and um, they had people like a ton of people come by to try and ID his body but no one could identify him no one knew who this guy was and they were like putting his picture on TV and this was basically worldwide news so fast forward four months and they actually find a hidden pocket sewn in his trousers and in the pocket they find a rolled up piece of paper from a book called Rubiot with the words printed tamam shed which means ended or finished in persian so this was four months after they had found him and they were still you know investigating and trying to find out just who this guy was right no one knows who this guy is 
I looked up that book just to see what it was because I totally forgot mm-hmm. what the actual book was. But it is a an 1859 translation from Persia to English by this guy Edward Fitzgerald. It's a selection of quatrains attributed to Omar Khayyam, dubbed the astronomer poet of Persia. Yeah. So it's like just a bunch of kind of um, what are quatrains? I remember that in like I don't even English. know what Did that you? word is. Okay. So they finally find this book, and it belongs to a local nurse named Jessica Thompson. And Thompson was an army nurse. And she lived less than a mile from where the Somerton man's body was found. They go, they pay Jessica Thompson a visit and ask if, you know, if she's ever seen this man, if she's heard of him. And she says no. She denies any involvement with him. Well, then they show her a picture, and literally her face goes white. The detectives who interviewed Thompson, they noted her evasive manner. She seemed reluctant to offer up any information. She requests anonymity, and she's granted it by the police. Obviously, she has something to do with this, right? Or obviously, she at least she knows, she knows this guy. But despite this extraordinary reaction, Jessica Thompson claims to not recognize the Somerton man and denied it till she died. Really? Yeah. But she did tell the police that she, too, had once owned a copy of this book, hmm. The Rubiot of Omar Khayyam. And... She had worked as a nurse in Sydney during World War II and recalls giving her copy of the book to an army lieutenant that she had met there, Alf Boxall. Up until Thompson's death in 2005, this is all anyone knew. So we still don't know who this guy is. The, up until 2005? Up until 2005, and this happened in 1948. What? And that's so strange. Like, why could they not find anything else out? They couldn't. I mean, this guy had no identity. Right. So we don't know, and no one's His claiming. His clothes had no identity. Nothing exactly. was labeled on this. Super sketchy. That's so weird. That gives me the EBGBs right? hard. Like, how sad would that be if you were just, if you died and no one knew you? I mean, I think he's buried on that beach. and Or maybe there's a sign where he was found, but it says, here lies the Somerton, Somerton man. man. That's but his like, name. That gives me chills, or like the creeps, thinking about like, you know, all those, like, men in black stories. Like, you know, yeah. there's that whole conspiracy theory that there's, like, people in our midst that, like, are total, totally unnoticeable. And, like, you know, nobody can point them out. They look like everyone else. There's no distinguishable features. It's like... Like D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck is he? Full circle. Always. Always. Love it. <laughs> um, but, okay. So... We have the Tom and Shed on printed on that piece of paper, right? Right. But then in the back of the book, there was this weird code. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, and it's like, here, we'll, and we'll post this on our website, but it looked like that. It's just a bunch of letters in all caps. And then some are crossed out. And some are crossed out. And no one can figure out what the fuck this code means. So it's like, is it a different language? Is it, um, is someone trying to send a message discreetly through this like we we still don't know that is a fascinating thing that i don't know about but every time it comes up like i should do more research on it but like code breakers like historical code breakers like especially in like world war ii with the nazis and stuff yes people what was that movie that was about that it was called um wasn't benedict cumberbatch oh fuck 
There's no a idea. movie about the code breakers of World War II. Like, it's both, like, British and, like, American people and stuff. Like, I think that is so fascinating. And I think those people are so smart. I could never break a code. Never. Oh, that is, like, I'm good at a lot of things. Like, a lot of, like, mental things. Like, mm-hmm. mental, like, if you try games or, like, problem solving. Yeah. But code breaking, you have to be, I think you have to be good at math. Don't ask me to break any code. Nope. Let's just say that. Last um, you should call. <laughs> okay, so... Okay, so this guy, Alf Boxel, he was reportedly involved in an intelligence work during and immediately after World War II. The nurse, Jessica Thompson, gave this book to him. Right. So that's the relation there. Okay, so let's fast forward. In 2013, there was an interview for the Australian version of 60 Minutes. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Jessica Thompson has a daughter, and her daughter Kate revealed that her mother had told her that she indeed know more about the Somerton man, that but she had deliberately not revealed to the police. Oh, she also revealed that her mother was able to speak Russian, and suggested that her mother may have been involved in some spy-related activity, and that her mother thought that the whole Somerton man affair was above, quote unquote, a state police level. So this, of course, has unleashed a torrent of speculation, but we still don't have any external evidence, right? Right. It's all conjecture and, like, hearsay at this point. Well, they found hair from that might be related to the Somerton man through his, like, a third cousin or something oh, like that. Weird. So now there's a petition to get him exhumed and to basically <gasps> do a DNA test on his body, and we can finally figure out who it oh is. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, Isn't that is crazy? That, he's like going through the courts right now. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we might know in like literally a couple months. <gasps> That's so exciting. Because that was what, this story is so crazy and so mysterious. And like there are so many like little, like all these clues and like they reach, like they go off in all these different directions and like end, you know, come up, you know, with nothing. But like. I love resolution. Like, I would yeah. love to see that solved. I mean, it's just so sad that, I mean, that's just, that's the story. There's this guy found dead on the beach. He's, he's dressed to the nines. Yeah. And no one knows who the fuck he is. This is so sad to me. I think I'm just sad too. But like, there are a lot of like weird things with all those clues. Yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. So TBD, we'll, we'll I'm, keep you guys I'm, updated. Yeah, well, if, if if it comes out, we'll definitely do like a little special report on it. For sure. <clears throat> so, all right, let's talk about the Beaumont children. There's a lot of stuff on this, so... Um, and I have never heard this story. Okay. So I'm very excited. I can't wait to tell you about it. So, this is a 50-year-plus cold case. No bodies have ever been found. They just literally disappeared off the face of the earth. But, I mean, everyone, even their parents, like, in my conclusion, like, I'll I'll say that, like, even their parents who are still alive today in their 90s, like, they've come to the conclusion, like, their kids were killed. So 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 I like to give... Their parents are still alive? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I like to give a little background on, like, I'm I'm calling them victims because they are... So what's so cute is, like, their parents, the Beaumont children's, their parents, basically fell in love at first sight and were engaged six weeks after their first date. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Six weeks. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's fast. Nancy and Jim. Oh. Nancy and Jim just fell in love. 
1956, their first child, Jane, the oldest, was born. Then came Anna in 1958, and then Grant in 1961. Um, Jane was shy, but very smart and seemed a lot older than like by the time the the day that they disappeared, she was nine. Like she seemed a lot older. Like her parents were like wise beyond her years. Like she's she acts like a 15 year old. Like she was very mature. She always protected her siblings. And um, Anna was an was extroverted, had a wild imagination. She loved singing and playing dress up and for the four-year-old Grant idolized his father, and they said he pretended to be his little assistant, like Aww, that's so around cute. the house, like helping him out. Adorable. So, Jim, the dad, was always traveling for work. Um, he was a, a traveling salesman for like some linen company, um, and you know, a, a cute little factoid was like Jane would write her dad's letters when he would leave, like Aww. telling him about like. You know, so he could, like, look at them and stuff. Like, so cute. Super sweet. So, um, 1966, their family was perfect. Like, they lived near this, I think, this pretty well-known beach called Glenelg Beach. And they would always go there when it was warm. It was home to a lot of historical hotels and, attract- and attractions. There's a business center. And I'm saying all that to say, like... There were thousands of visitors to this beach, like, every year. Like, yeah. this is a super popular place to come in the summer. So, the last day seen, their dad was going to go out of town, and on his way out of town, he was going to give the kids a ride to the beach. And this was, like, very, very common back in those days. Like, this is the 60s. I mean, nobody locked their doors, and this was a really, really safe place. Yeah. And, um, they... Jim and Nancy, like, trusted their kids completely. They they obeyed their parents really well. They took care of each other. If they were going to be somewhere, they were always on time. They were never late. Like, wow. like so they, this happened countless of times. And, like, all of their, like, the parents back then, like, they would let the kids go to the beach and, like, do their parent thing. Like, that was very, very common. So... So he took them to the beach, and then they came home and, and, you know, had a great day. The following day, Jim is out of town, so Nancy Beaumont let the kids go back to the beach to play very similarly to the day before. Like, they literally were there the day before. Nothing bad happened. Um, It was Australia Day, so there were thousands of visitors that day at the beach. It was too hot for them to walk, so they got on a bus that let them right off at the beach. So she put them on a bus, like, close to their little neighborhood. And, like, th- like they just got straight to where they were going to be playing. So um, so th- there's a lot of description of, like, what they were wearing and stuff. The one thing that I'm going to pull out is, like, and it'll come in to the story later. But Jane, the oldest, had a, like, white clip-top purse like a little now we would say it's a vintage but she had like a little purse and her mom gave them six shillings just enough to like buy a little lunch for themselves and that's gonna be important too. remember like that amount okay so they they got there early in the morning and they were supposed to come back on the midday bus at 10 30 um so nancy that's around so 10 30 still be asleep at 10 30 right wow. Nancy rode her bike to the bus stop to meet her children, but only one, like, elderly person got off the bus. So she just was like, okay, this is odd, but she just thought they missed it. So she's like, okay, well, they'll be on the next one at 2 o'clock. Like, not super concerned. Like, so she went back home, hung out with her friends, and, 
and like had some people over at the house, but two o'clock came and went, no kids. Then she waited at the de- at the bus stop for the three o'clock bus. Jim came back from traveling, and Nancy was like, "I'm really fucking worried. Like, they're not coming back on the bus. There was no sign of the children by three thirty. And what year was this? 1966. Okay, so no cell phones, no, no none of that. Nothing. Shit. So. So Nancy, like, waited at home, and then Jim drove to town to see if he could find them. And there were way too many people. Like, he couldn't... Oh, how scary. He couldn't find... He, there's too many... There's, like, throngs of people. They like, couldn't find him. So he went back, got Nancy, but by 5.30, could not find them. Could you imagine, like, looking for your children for hours? Like... No, remember super... when you lost Mowgli? Yes. Remember how, like, it traumatic was, it that was? Traumatic. It was oh, traumatic. Oh, my God. I couldn't imagine if he was a real person. Like your um, actual baby. Actual three baby. of them. Oh, God. <laughs> that make, oh, that makes me so much sure. Okay. <clears throat> um, so by 530, couldn't find them and had then reported them missing to the police. Um, at first, the constable was certain it was okay because abducting three children would be hard, especially on a crowded beach, crowded day. So... The police investigations revealed that on the day of their disappearances, several witnesses had seen the children on and near Glenelg Beach in the company of a tall, blonde, and thin-faced man with a suntan complexion of thin to athletic build, aged in his mid-30s. Confirmed sightings of the three children occurred at this place called the Collie Reserved at Wenzel's Cake Shop, um, where they would like go get lunch. But despite numerous searches, neither the children nor their suspected companion was located. So let's talk about the police investigation. So they they jumped into the action immediately. They organized the search of the beach, adjacent areas. And this is important because it's not just a beach. Like, there's so many other, like, the you know, attractions in town and, like, places to go. Like, it's not just, like, you're just searching the beach. Right. Um. <clears throat> So they started looking in places that they thought they would be if they had simply lost track of time, like they're playing too long. Um, They looked at sand hills, the oceans, nearby building, with the airport, rail lines, interstate roads were being monitored too, based on a fear of accident or kidnapping. Um, Within 24 hours, the entire nation was aware of the case. Wow. Yeah. It went up like crazy. Within, so none of this wait 24, 48-hour hold bullshit. No. Good. Nothing. So within three days, on January 29th, the Sunday mail led with a headline of sex crime now feared, highlighting the rapid, rapidly evolving fear that they had been abducted and murdered by a sex offender. And despite this, the initial reward was only 250 pounds? That's it? Yeah. Oh, my Police God. Police quickly, right? quickly established that between them, they were carrying 17 individual items, but none of these individual items were ever found. That included towels, clothing, bags. Nothing was found. However, Jane Beaumont, the oldest daughter, her white clip-top purse was discovered in 2006. What? When an investigator named Stuart, Stuart Mullins conducted a visit to the home of businessman Harry Phipps, although Phipps's wife disposed of the purse when questioned. Harry Phipps sounds like a sketch. Like a sketch ball. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So uh, there is a boat haven that was drained, completely drained, after a woman told police that she spoke with three children who were similar in description with the Beaumont children near the haven at 7 p.m. on January 26th. Police cadets, a member of the emergency operations group, searched the area, but nothing was found. Like, that's what's so crazy. Like, there's no hide or hair, like, of these kids at all. Like, they literally just disappeared off the face of the earth. And, I mean... They had to have left Australia. I don't know. I don't know. So, Jim, the dad, would go on to TV to plead for his children, Mm. and Nancy was so upset that she was basically heavily medicated in the house the entire time. Like, she couldn't Don't even blame go on TV. So, around the police investigation, like I said, found several witnesses who had seen the children near the beach in the company of that tall, blonde, thin-faced man. But they said the children were playing with him and appeared relaxed and to be enjoying themselves. They appeared completely at ease and were not distressed at all. So that led police to think that Australia Day was not the first day they had met this man. Oh, the, shit. The man either frequented the area or were known to the children in another capacity. Um, investigators theorized that children had perhaps met the man during a previous visit and grown to trust him. And then a chance remark at home, which seemed insignificant at the time, supports this theory. So Anna had told the middle child had told her mother that Jane had got a boyfriend down at the beach. Nancy Beaumont, the mom, thought she meant a playmate and took no further notice until after the disappearance. So the little sister said, like, her older sister had a boyfriend down at the beach, yeah. right? Was this the boyfriend, this blonde perv? Probably. We don't know. <sighs> So a shopkeeper at nearby Wenzel's Bakery, one of the places that they were spotted, reported that Jane, the oldest daughter, had bought pastries and a meat pie with a one-pound note, which is way more than her mom would have ever given her. Okay. You know, like, because she she had only had, what, six shillings. Um, Police viewed this. So would it be like six cents? Not six cents. But, like, basically. Totally different. Yeah. Totally different. Police viewed this as further evidence that they had been with another person for two reasons. The shopkeeper knew the children well from previous visits and reported that they had never purchased a meat pie before. Like, they didn't eat it. Like, they probably purchased it for that man. Ugh. And and the children's mother had given them only six shillings, enough for their best fare and food, and not one pound. Uh, uh, Police believed it had been given to them by somebody else. And yeah, like I said, they ordered a shit ton of food, ordered a meat pastry for the man. They had more money than they ever had access to, so it was suspicious. Um, Jim and Nancy also like described their children, particularly Jane, like I mentioned earlier, as shy. So for them to be playing so confidently with this stranger seemed completely out of character. Yeah, he's so not a stranger. He groomed them. Oh my god. So another odd thing was that this man was seen helping the girls put their shorts over their bathing suits. Ew. One of the women that saw him do this thought it was weird because the older girl looked too old to be needing help. The man went into the chain sheds behind the building. So like, I guess at the beach they would have like these sheds, like where you could like get in and out of your swimsuits. So he went there by himself to get dressed 
with nothing but pants and a towel while the children waited. And that was at 12.15 that day. After this, there was no more sightings. So 12.15 is the last time that anyone had seen the children. And they're waiting for Blonde Pervert to change. To change. Okay. <clears throat> it became the most extensive search in South Australian history. There were so many sightings and most would lead to nowhere. So here's something kind of crazy that happened in this case. This case also attracted international attention on November 8th. So that was in January. So like months later in 1966, Gerard Croisset, a parapsychologist and psychic from the Netherlands was brought to Australia, causing a media frenzy. Like people said that when he came to the airport, like the crowd and like the frenzy, like for his plane was like bigger to when like the Beatles came because everyone wanted his input. Yeah, of this crazy case, right? Yeah. What's his name again? Gerard Croiset. C R O I S E T. Oh my god! I want him to be a guest speaker. Is he mm, dead? Probably. Yeah. His search for the children proved unsuccessful, with his story changing from day to day and offering no clues. Shocker. Yeah. He identified <laughs> nice a site. Psychic. He identified a site in a warehouse near the children's home um, and also near the primary school attended by um, Jane and Anna, in which he believed the children's bodies had been buried. At the time of their disappearance, it had been a building site, and he said that he believed their bodies were buried under new concrete inside the remains of an old brick kiln. The property owners, who were reluctant to excavate on the basis of a psychic's claim, Soon bowed to public pressure after a publicity raid raised $40,000 to have the building demolished. No remains or any evidence linking to any of the Beaumont family were found. In 1996, the building identified by Corset was undergoing partial demolition and the owners allowed again for another full search of the site. Once again, no trace of the children. Oh my God. So they tore down this building? Yes, twice. So, <clears throat> later, some later developments in the case. So, in January 2016, near the case's 50th anniversary, South Australian police were following up on another lead into the Beaumont children's disappearance, in which a telephone tip pointed to another suspect in the case. In that instance, a person who by that time was deceased, the caller was convinced that the person whom he had named was the culprit. But this guy was dead already. The suspect of this caller yeah. <clears throat> police said that they had received 159 t- calls to crime stoppers over the preceding two years so like how frustrating would that be like i mean it's awesome people are trying to help but like 160 calls oh my in God. two years about this one case that happened in the 60s it's nuts <clears throat> that is nuts. yeah so earlier this year in february in 2018 further excavation was initiated and the back of the North Plumpton factory that had previously belonged to another possible suspect. A police victim contact officer was reported to be sitting with Mr. Beaumont to ensure that he heard what happened before anyone else. So, like, he was nice. sitting... Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing, the support. Because a lot yeah. of these, like, disappearances, you don't hear of, like, you know, police force or, like, local police, like, really putting in this effort. But, like, you know... 50 plus years, right? Um, Nothing relevant was found. The excavation was based on two men reporting that as boys, they had been paid to dig a hole in that area 
at around that time in the 60s. And geophysical testing had identified anomalous disturbed soil. So basically like, mm-hmm. right? Someone dug Animal bones up were found, but nothing related to the Beaumont children. So <clears throat> who are some, I, I'm going to go through just two possible suspects. Like there's a whole list, like you can find it on Wikipedia. Um, but these are the two main ones. So the possible subs, one is Bevan Spencer Von Einman. He was sentenced to life in prison in 1984 for murdering 15-year-old Richard Kelvin, son of Adelaide newsreader Rob Kelvin, so in the same area. Police and prosecutors publicly stated that they believed Von Einem had accomplices and was possibly involved in additional murders. So there's also something in Australian true crime called the Family Murders. It's a really famous case, so... Like, look it up. It's it's crazy. <clears throat> he But after he was sentenced to life in prison, he never cooperated with the police for any other murders, so they never got any information from him directly. So why was he considered? So there was a confidential informant, a CI, called Mr. B, said that he had a conversation with Bevan Spencer von Einman, and he said he had that Einman boasted of having taken three children from a beach several years earlier and said he had taken them home to conduct experiments. <gasps> oh my God. Isn't that gross? Ugh. Von Einem said he had performed brilliant surgery on each of them <gasps> and had connected them up. One of the children had supposedly died during the procedure, so he had killed the other two and dumped all the bodies in bushland south of Adelaide. Wait, so he basically took them, and I'm assuming it's his basement, and conducted surgery, like, to connect them, like, conjoined triplets? I don't know. I don't know. It's so gross. So, so that's what this CI, like, told them, like, that guy. It's hearsay, of course, but, like, uh, so while Von Einem was known to have frequented Glenelg Beach to, quote-unquote, perv on the changing rooms and... What was described as preoccupied with children. Gross. Oh my God. What argues against his involvement in the Beaumont children's disappearances is, is that when he was that he was younger than the suspect seen with the children in 1966. So the suspect was reported to be in like his mid 30s, and at that time, this guy was like 20 or 21. So he definitely looked younger. Another. <clears throat> Another important distinction is that Von Einem was convicted of murdering a 15-year-old and suspected of killing men in their teens and 20s, so victims older than the Beaumont children. But, I mean, you have that CI saying that nasty shit. So the other main suspect was this guy, Arthur Stanley Brown. He was named named a suspect in 1998, so what? Oh, my God. 32 years later? Yeah. Good math. Oh, that's, wow. Done. No more math today. <laughs> <laughs> so he was named a suspect of the Beaumont children case in 1998 when he was charged with the murders of sisters Judith, age seven, and Susan, age five, McKay, in Townsville, Queensland. They disappeared while on their way to school on August 26, 1970, and their bodies were found several days later in a dry creek bed. I've, I've actually listened to a podcast on that one. It's... So sad. Um, so he, this Arthur Stanley Brown guy, he, along with Von Einem, is still considered the best suspect because he looked like the description of 
that man seen yeah. that day. Yeah. So here's what's weird. Uh, so a search for a connection to the Beaumonts was unsuccessful as no employment records existed that could shed light on Brown's movement at that time. Some of the records were believed lost in the 1974 Brisbane flood. And it was also possible that Brown, who had unrestricted access to government buildings, may have deleted his own files. So Brown is considered a suspect for the Beaumont children disappearance based on the connections that have been made between him and the Adelaide oval abduction another case so this guy's a government worker so he had unrestricted access to like grounds and files and stuff like that yeah so this is kind of sad nancy and jim divorced oh yeah you know that's pretty typical in like heinous murder cases of children or like abduction or disappearance yeah, the, your life the, forever, i'm sure the parents normally can't stay together um, but she, they, she never moved out of that house. She was uh, Nancy, their mom. Waiting for she them was to like, come home. "What if they showed up and I wasn't Ugh. here?" So, but as of today, like they, like I said, they're in their nineties. They have accepted the fact that the truth about their children may never be revealed. So, that is so heartbreaking. So, in conclusion, the Beaumont case resulted in one of the largest police investigations in Australia criminal history and remains one of Australia's most infamous cold cases, even after many decades. As of 2018, the Premier South Australia, Jay Wetherill, said that Australia police had never given up on the case, and they have a policy that no murder investigation ends up in a closed file, Love which it. is totally different, because I feel like a shit ton of, like, files in, in like, the U.S. get uh, closed. Yeah. <laughs> um, the state government also continues to maintain a $1 million reward for information relating to the children's Wow. So they upped that from 250 big time. So that's it. Oh, so sad. That is so sad. And so oh frustrating. My God. And so frustrating. And we're never going to know. No, probably not. Probably oh not. God. And that it's crazy shocking. story. That's so crazy. Yeah. I mean, when I think of Beaumont, I think of Beaumont, Texas. Of course. <laughs> dear, dear. Well, guys. Oh, I guess that's it, that's right? It. That's it for today. Yeah. Hope you guys are having a great Friday and you're a little freaked out and Ready to start have a great weekend. weekend. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, we God love you. God, God bless, bless and trust no one. one. Bye. Bye.